Only if you are living under a rock, and even then, you probably still have heard something of the cyber attacks that have assailed all kinds of companies and agencies and all kinds of different entities. In fact, not that long ago, the Metropolitan Opera, of all things, was subject to a cyber attack, which essentially disabled its its uh, website, its ability to sell tickets and uh, to, to, to properly function. But that is just the tip of a gigantic iceberg and just the start of what is an increasingly troubling specter of increasing cyber attacks uh, coming from all different quarters and uh, affecting so many of us uh, even in the course of our day-to-day lives. And it leaves all of us, uh, understandably, in a high state of anxiety. Uh, what attack is next? And uh, is there a truly catastrophic attack right around the corner uh, that could affect everyone and, and uh, everything in our lives? Uh, a book that is written to uh, talk about this has just been released, and it's called the Unhackable Internet, How Rebuilding Cyberspace Can Create Real Security and Prevent Financial Collapse. It is written by Thomas Vartinian, who is executive director of uh, the nonprofit Financial Technology and Cybersecurity Center. Uh, his long resume includes uh, working with a number of important companies and serving as general counsel of the Federal Home Loan Bank uh, Board during uh, the SNL crisis, chairman for a time of the American Bar Association Cyberspace Law Committee, the author of a previous book called uh, American Financial Panics, Crashes, Recessions, and Depressions, and the Technology That Will Change It All. And again, this latest uh, book is uh, in part a, a sobering call to action uh, a uh, sounding the alarm, but also offering some concrete ideas on how we can perhaps find our way out of this to a safer, more secure world. The book, The Unhackable Internet, is published by Prometheus. And Thomas Vartanian, we welcome you to the morning show. Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you, although I have to say this is among uh, the most unpleasant of topics, but it is so important for us to be talking about this and to be doing more than just wringing our hands uh, in, in consternation. Uh, one of the points of your book would seem to be that the reason we find ourselves in this position with so much of our lives, uh, in a sense, online and digitalized and highly vulnerable is because we have, in a sense, rushed to this place without taking proper precautions uh, along the way. Can you tell us more about that, about that rush into this current scenario uh, in which uh, most entities, most companies, most governments do not seem to be properly prepared? Yeah, Greg. I mean, uh, what I talk about in the book is essentially digging into the last 25 years, which characterizes and and dramatizes that rush uh, and what the government has done and what the private sector has done. The bottom line is, is that we have all, and I include myself in this, and I, I, I have a section in the book where I basically confess that I was hypnotized as anybody else by, by technology, but we are all mesmerized by technology, what it can do, 
the efficiencies that it can create, the money that it can save, and the profits that it can generate. And, and of course, the individuals in, uh, around the world are, are just captivated with what they can do on social media and, and in, in another context. I mean, it's basically how much information about yourself you can give up for free. But we've all been sort of captivated by this um, waterfall and just took the ride, not ever realizing there's a very important balance that has gotten completely out of balance. And that is, on the one hand, we have the enormous innovations, the enormous improvements to the quality of life that technology can provide and that the Internet is a very important part of. But on the other side of that, We've got insecurity and vulnerability. And to make the point a little more starkly, we now have created a network with no police, no rules, uh, no armies, that is the primary distributor of child sexual abuse material, drugs, weapons, stolen data. There was an article this week about people's personal medical and health records being sold with their name attached to it on the Internet. Now, that's only part of it human trafficking, espionage, money laundering is all easier and now sort of finding its way to the Internet uh, to be more effective. So that balance is what we've got to fix. We can't lose the innovation that technology has provided us, but we've got to come to grips with the fact that if we move our analog lives onto an online environment, onto the Internet, we have to move the rules, too. I mean, you can't... (laughs) You can't have all these rules in the real world. We lock our doors at night. We have fences. We have borders. We have armies. But when we live, move everything online, just basically jettison all of those rules and those protections. It doesn't make any sense. Hmm. One of the tricks about this is that uh, the Internet's very openness is one of the things that, at least at a glance, makes it the most attractive. I mean, that Wild West aspect of it also means that anybody can write a blog and just about anybody can create a podcast and just about anybody can share their thoughts on just about anything. And uh, the idea, I mean, like you yourself mentioned the word police, uh, the very notion of, in a sense, policing the Internet, controlling the Internet, uh, is going to immediately raise certain concerns and, and already have, of course, when when certain legislation, for instance, has been proposed. Uh, on that matter of openness, uh, how much do your suggestions about what we should do going forward concern that, that uh, trying to maintain at least some of that openness of the Internet? Or is that simply impossible? Is it impossible to have an open Internet and a secure internet. Yeah, uh, that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question that I confront, uh, Greg, and it's a very good question because you can see in your daily life uh, we're always trading off technology against security, right? We're always trading off the use of, of some form of online um, communication with the possible loss of privacy. It's a constant tension. It's a constant balancing. And it's a constant battle that we have to fight. Unfortunately, uh, I think, as we've said already, I mean, we've, we've sort of gotten overwhelmed by the hypnotic effect of technology and gotten overwhelmed into this world of openness that seems like it's pretty convenient and pretty efficient and pretty much fun. 
The problem is, is that there are adversarial nations, uh, criminal cartels, terrorists, uh, fanatics, everybody, uh, you know, who's, who would do horrible things online, more than willing to take advantage of that situation. And, and you just suggested it. I mean, what, what some have written about, and I think it's a great way of, of articulating it, is that what the Internet has done is not only made everybody an author, it's made everybody a publisher. And so everybody can get their views out there in, 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 in nanoseconds, right, wrong, indifferent, fair, unfair. Uh, and that openness, you know, is something that the Internet culture loves. I mean, to get rid of that would be viewed as heresy. But the fact of the matter is, is that unless we start to curtail some of that openness and some of that freeness of the Internet, that Wild West feature, as you suggest, we will be giving up more and more of our security and more and more of our privacy. And, and that's just the way I, I think it, it's going to work. And I think the problem is, and this is the reason why we haven't uh, tried to fix this problem and we've gotten so out of balance, is because it will slow down the Internet. It will be inconvenient to people. Uh, I mean, just look at what a horrible thing some people uh, do online with anonymity. Anonymity is not a great feature for some people. They don't know how to handle it. And, but everybody can be anonymous online and say whatever they want and just basically go on to the next thing in their lives. Uh, and it sometimes can be very destructive and very harmful. So, yeah, we're going to have to deal with that openness. And what I talk about in the book a lot, and, and I offer solutions and without stealing the thunder from the book, which, by the way, is out today, uh, you know, what I suggest is, we have to get rid of anonymity. We have to go back to at least for critical infrastructures. There are 16 critical infrastructures that have been identified, including financial services, military, uh, the power grid, healthcare. at least for things that are important in terms of critical infrastructure communication. That's got to be done on networks that are far more secure, far more private, that have authentication to a real person, that has governance rules, and that has police making sure the rules are followed, and at least for critical infrastructures. If we can go that far and, and just create that much inconvenience for users, we will have made, take, taken a huge step forward. But without doing that, uh, you know, uh, every time you, you, your fingers touch that keyboard, you're communicating some information to somebody who's taking it, splicing it, dicing it, and reselling it over and over thousands of times the people who you have no imagination about who they are and what they're going to do with it. Hmm. We're speaking with Thomas Vertinian, and we are talking about his new book called The Unhackable Internet, How Rebuilding Cyberspace Can Create Real Security and Prevent Financial Collapse. Your book, of course, talks about any number of significant cyber attacks. Can you just roughly trace for our listeners kind of the history of what we are talking about? I mean, how soon after the, the creation and development of what we think of now as, uh, as the current-day Internet, how soon did significant cyber attacks begin occurring? And how has the nature of those attacks changed, evolved over the years? Yeah, that's a great question. Greg, so, you know, the, the Internet explosion that created this openness. I mean, the Internet was there, it was, was created in 1969, 
uh, out of a, an experiment by DARPA, which then handed off what was then the Internet or, DARP, or, or the DARPAnet to four universities so they could share research data. So you can see from the very beginning, this thing was never meant to be open to every, every human on, on, the, on the planet, every machine on the planet. And number two, the, the inventors of the Internet would tell you that it was never meant to be secure in the way that it needs to be secure today. So we started off building something that has nothing to do with the way we're using it today. So that's the first problem. Uh, as we got deeply into opening up the Internet in the late 90s when we had this explosion of, uh, of dot-com companies going public and everything going uh, online, Uber, you know, and, and, all, and all of those kinds of companies coming and going and, and creating uh, new elements. And then social media hit in 2004, and that was really the beginning of a new era when Facebook opened up in 2004, when uh, it basically invited everybody on the planet to share information about themselves, where they are, you know, what they're doing. And that then created, uh, I, I think, the, the beginning of the cyber, war, uh, cyber wars that have occurred online and have afflicted just about every major corporation on the planet, every country, and many, many users. Hmm. So, you know, people say, uh, well, you know, it happens, but it gets fixed. Well, the problem is, yeah, it does happen, and it's happened to just about, as I said, every major government organization and every major private corporation. But the problem is it's getting more and more severe and more and more problematic because what started as, you know, minuscule disruptions in, in a system. So, for example, what they call a denial of service attack. You know, you just unleash a number of bots on a website and, and then traffic is so ubiquitous that it shuts down the website. Well, you know, that's one kind of an attack. At the end of the day, nobody's hurt, gets back up online, and everybody walks away and says, you know, that wasn't so bad. But if you were in Estonia in 2007, and if you were in Brazil in 2016, or in Ukraine in 2022, you saw the lights go out, you saw media go down, you saw your financial services uh, interface disappear, you saw your money disappear for several days. And that has got to be the most horrifying feeling on the face of the planet because you have no capability of dealing with that. Who's the cyber police? Do you know the phone number that you call the cyber police to fix that problem? Uh, you know, and that's, that's where we've ended up, and, and not by anybody's plans. It's just been that's where technology and entrepreneurs and pioneers unveiling all of these products and all of these networks one after another have brought us, and nobody has sat down and asked the question that I asked in the book, and that is, did we buy, did we build the right Internet, and is it broken today, and how can we fix it? And all I'm trying to do in this book is get people to ask those questions, because I know what the answers are, and then consider some of the recommendations and some of the suggestions that I have put forward to basically stop what I think is uh, is a road to perdition here in terms of what we're doing and how much information we're putting online to be available to just about anybody who wants to abuse it. Hmm. Just to clarify, you say, you know, uh, you've written this book to get us to ask this question, have we built the right kind of 
internet or do we need a new one? We need to talk about that. And But then I think the next thing you said is, and I know the answer. So uh, in other words, as far as you are concerned, although you know, in a sense we need to discuss this, but uh, I, th- I think what you're really kind of implying is that we can discuss the particulars, but there is no question but that we have created an Internet that does not serve us well and that is leading us to uh, a very, very dangerous future. I mean, is that fair to say? Am I fairly surmising uh, and summarizing your, 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 uh, your perspective here? You are, Greg. The, uh, the Internet that we've got is not the one that we need for what we're using it for. If you had told the pioneers and the inventors of the Internet uh, that it was going to be used to house every inch of important sensitive data in the world and every penny of value and money in the world, they would have said, you've got to be out of your mind. That's not what we're creating this for. But that's exactly what's happened. And so, yes, we've built, the, we've built an Internet that, that's good for things and some things. But it's not good for what we're using it for, and it's got too many vulnerabilities. And when, and when we're spending upwards of $500 billion a year on cybersecurity uh, defenses and, and knowing that we really can never prevent the attack, we're just going to be like mice on a wheel, you know, spinning our, spinning our legs uh, on this wheel uh, without ever getting to the point we need to get to. And that is we need to be able to prevent these vulnerabilities we need to have a secure online environment, and we just don't have that. Mm. Let me stop you for a moment and ask what might seem like a strange question, but uh, I think it's critical to this conversation. Who do you mean when you say we? We need to uh, develop this and develop that and rethink this and rethink that. By we, do you mean the the human race <laughs> or do you mean specifically more specifically the united states or the united states and those who s- s- similarly share this concern i mean who is the we to whom you are speaking and 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 the, who is the we that you are in a sense calling to action on this yeah well, that that's, that is the question i get to in the book and and i, I got to that question Largely because a number of the people I talk to in, in the Internet world, people who have been around at the, at the creation of the Internet and who claim to be founders of this part or that part of it, um, you know, all basically say, and, and, and I found this to be an intriguing part of, of the thought process I went through, that, you know, this, the Internet it doesn't belong to the United States government, it doesn't belong to the United States people. It's a global phenomenon. And so to make the changes we need, we need global acquiescence. We need global leadership of everybody, of everybody and everything on the planet. And now that might sound like an enormous task, and I think it is an enormous task. That's why I try to break it up into pieces and sort of make it a little more manageable in terms of what I recommend to fix the Internet, because getting – we can't even get – people in the House of Representatives and the Senate to agree on anything, to think that we're going to get people around the world uh, involved in this and, and uh, agreeing is sheer folly. So what I suggest, number one, is, is that the United States has to take the leadership. We are still 
the world's military and economic power and technological power in this world, at least for the time being. You know, China has great designs on all of those goals. At least for the time being, we are, and we have to assume the leadership, such as the leadership we assumed with Bretton Woods after the Second World War, when we convened all of the nations of the country in New Hampshire to deal with the economic crisis in the world and come up with the, the dollar as the global reserve currency backed by gold. We need another Bretton Woods, number one. Number two, that leadership has got to be exerted by the United States. It cannot default in that position. Number three, we have to be prepared to leave nations out. If you're not willing to fix this problem and come along with us, you're not going to be involved in this new Internet. You're not going to be involved in, in the new secure networks that we're creating. Just think about this for a second, Greg. What environment is it? What workspace is it? What family space is it? that adversaries share the same space. So we're all swimming in the same Internet water. The United States, Russia, Iran, North Korea, um, you, you name it. I mean, how is it that we all share the same Internet? I mean, that has been always been an assumption. It's not an assumption I make. I mean, and frankly, like Brenton Woods, you know, what the United States basically did as the, as the largest uh, remaining powerful entity in the world basically said, look, we're going to try to come up with some collegial and compromises here on an economic basis. But at the end of the day, and, you know, nobody ever said it this way, but it's our way or the highway. And that's leadership at the end of the day, because we, we have to get to the point where we're going to say, uh, maybe you don't participate in this Internet if you're not going to abide by the rules. And frankly, people say, well, how do you do that? Well, China and Russia are already doing it. China and Russia, Russia censor their Internet. There are three interfaces where cables come into China that are monitored and controlled by the Chinese government. You don't get into Chinese Internet space unless the Chinese government lets you. So we already have segmented Internets throughout the world. It's just that we don't do it, uh, and we let anybody into ours, but they don't let anybody, everybody into theirs. That's an intriguing point that you are raising. I suppose it it is seen as maybe a double-edged sword in terms of a being a persuasive tool. That is, uh, it, in a sense, is encouraging to know that here, here are two real-world examples of how to, in a sense, tighten up the, the Internet to make it more secure. On the other hand, you are pointing to two world governments that uh, with which a lot of people <laughs> take considerable exception. And uh, so to follow their lead in this respect uh, is probably troubling to, to some people. Are there aspects of what they have done that uh, we should embrace and other aspects of what they've done that we need to be very wary of? Yeah, so that's, that's an excellent point, which, which I also sort of got to as I was thinking through the solutions here. And, 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 and that is, yeah, there are parts of what they're doing that we could, we could learn from. So, for example, you could be using artificial intelligence to intervene at these choke points uh, to monitor what's coming and going uh, in your Internet. Now, like everything else in the world, there's both a plus and a minus to that. The plus is that you can actually weed out uh, the dangerous and the pernicious stuff that's going on whether it be, you know, human trafficking or uh, 
espionage or whatever the case may be. You can weed that out perhaps a little bit better. And what I suggest in the book is nobody should be able to travel around on our Internet, on a safe Internet, unless they've agreed that, that there's a kill switch in their applications. And, and if they don't abide by the rules, those kill switches will be, will be activated and they'll disappear from the online activity. But, you know, the, other, the, the balancing point here is for all the good you can do from this kind of monitoring, there will be those who will argue, and I couldn't agree more, that that power in the hands of an authoritarian or totalitarian state is very dangerous because then it determines what you see, how you see it, and when you see it. And we've seen those debates in the United States just involving Twitter uh, and Facebook, for example. So those are very, very different very difficult issue. So here's how I suggest, as a former federal agency regulator, here's how I suggest we resolve those issues. I suggest that whatever governance bodies that we create on a global basis to deal with a better and more secure Internet is not, is not dominated by any government people and is 50% private sector, 50% government. And so there's always a balancing in terms of the voting and the governance that's being created. And think about it for a second. If the government and the industry and individuals were forced to work together to make policy decisions, they would actually have to come to a consensus. They would actually have to engage in compromise. And that's not a bad thing to re-inject into the world that we live in, which seems to be completely devoid of compromise and completely devoid of any collegial action. So, as a former regulator, I'm a little concerned about giving all that power to any regulators or any government. And what I would do is I would come up – I think technology requires a different regulatory and governance model that is shared evenly among individuals, businesses, and government. Hmm. We're speaking with Thomas Vartanian. We're talking about his book, The Unhackable Internet, How Rebuilding Cyberspace – can create real security and prevent financial collapse. Let's talk for a moment about, uh, and, and, I, and again, we will leave it to uh, our listeners to investigate your book and read further on, on uh, some of the proposals that you make, but you talk about a total of 16 different significant infrastructures that absolutely must be uh, more securely protected in terms of their, their cyber activity. And uh, you, you suggest in your book the formation of what it sounds like maybe in certain sectors has already occurred, that is the creating of very secure private networks uh, in which those various infrastructures would, would function. Uh, as best you can, I mean, this is so tricky because in, in many cases we're talking about matters that are highly technical and that even for those of us that spend most of our days uh, on the Internet, uh, it's still going to be terminology that is way above most of us. But can you help us understand the way in which such private networks could indeed be secure from the kind of cyber attacks to which they are so vulnerable right now? I mean, in layman's yeah. terms, what 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 is done, uh, What what about a private network can make it truly secure. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let, me, let me 
take a shot at that and because and, I think it's a terrific question. And I think what I like to do in the book is give real life examples because I think it makes it makes the, the discussion real to people as opposed to just throwing out highfalutin concepts. Right. And I want to say that's I think that's one of the best things about your book is that it is not written from a <laughs> secure ivory tower, but in a sense is very much written with a rootedness in the real world. Yeah, you know, and I, I spent uh, 25, 20, 25 years helping financial institutions around the world build out their online interface and their online financial services um, uh, mechanisms. And it was only because I realized the mistakes that we had all made in being caught up in that euphoria. Uh, you know, it's an irrational exuberance. It's been described that in, in other sectors that I now have come back to say, you know, here's what we should have been thinking about when we did it, because when the CEO says to a team of us, technicians and, and accountants and advisors and lawyers, let's get this new interface created, um, you know, everybody says, well, that's our job, to get it created. And you never stop and think about the insecurities, the vulnerabilities, the threats that may occur four or five years down the line. And, and that's what's happened. That's the problem where we've been captivated. So when I got into banking in the 1970s, there was no Internet, right? And, but there were networks upon which, uh, for the payment systems, credit cards, uh, you know, the Fed payment systems, and automated clearinghouse settlement systems. They were all private networks. So as I started, started thinking about the solutions here, I decided that it was really – uh, going back in history to find the solution, and that is the critical infrastructures, we should have secure private networks like we had back in the 1970s and the 1960s. So what does that mean? It means that if you want to go on your browser and, and go into your online banking feature, you enter a new world. You're not in the regular world of the open architecture of the Internet anymore. You're in a new system. You're in a new network. And in that network, several things have to happen. First of all, it's got to be a network that is highly secure and it is monitored. And I don't care if it's monitored by people, which is probably unrealistic. It's probably going to have to be monitored by artificial intelligence machines, uh, one or the other, though it's got to be monitored to determine that there are rules in place and that those rules are being followed. Second of all, there has got to be a different form of authentication. So you can go onto social media, you can go onto any newspaper's website, you can leave comments anonymously. That can't happen on a secure private network. We're not, we're not identifying IP addresses. We're not identifying machines. We're identifying people. We have to use mechanisms that when I go into my secure financial network to do banking or trade securities, that that network knows it's me. Not that it knows it's my machine or it's my IP address. It's got to know that it's me. And that may involve biometric checking, may involve a fingerprint on the keyboard. But once I'm in and it knows it's me and it knows I've agreed to certain rules, and if I don't follow those rules, my ability to be existing on that network disappears. Then we're in a much different world. The other thing that's got to happen, Greg, in those secure private networks is what we call zero-trust architecture. And what that means for the layman is as follows. When you go online to a site and it purports to authenticate you, it authenticates 
an IP address, and it lets you in. And once you're into that site, you can go any place you want, do anything you want on that site without further inquiries as to who you are. That's not the way zero-trust architecture should work in a secure network. The way it should work in a secure network is once you're in, every place you want to go, it's got to reestablish your identity as a person. And it's got to reconfirm your ability and your willingness to, to live according to the rules. Now, is that inconvenient? Yeah, it will be some inconvenience. Two, is it take slow down your, your experience online? Yeah, it will slow down your experience online. Will it be inconvenient? Yeah, it will be more inconvenient than, than the current Internet. But, but I say several times in the book, it's a trade-off. If I told you that doing those things would give you a better guarantee that your money will be there tomorrow morning, would you do them? Or said another way, if I guaranteed you, you have a high probability of losing your money. If you don't do those things, would you do them? And I think everybody would say, I'll, I'll live with the inconvenience to get that higher degree of security. Right. I mean, a little inconvenience for being able to sleep a little more soundly at night. And I should think that part of what may make this uh, a more persuadable point is that the longer we go in this current scenario with so many of us unprotected and vulnerable, the likelihood is that more and more of us are going to experience this directly, some some kind of direct attack upon ourselves, our funds, whatever. And uh, it's it's when you have experienced this directly, not just reading about it in the paper, but when it is your bank account or your company or your community or the local power company or whatever, uh, when this hits close to home, uh, one starts to realize this is real. This is not paranoid delusion. This is something about which all of us need to be more deeply concerned than we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. What I what I call what I say in the book is I call it a data lollapalooza. You know, I mean, if you think if you think about a criminal, whether it be a hostile nation, uh, a criminal cartel, and Whatever the case may be, I mean, they got to be salivating when, when they look at what they can do here. With just take ransomware for for example, you know, if I can lock up your computer, I send you an email saying I'll unlock your computer if you pay me four million dollars. If I send out fifty of those a day, if I do fifty of those a day, and I get one, my business is really doing quite well. I mean, ransomware is really a business, right? And, and, and if you can't get any money from doing it. You don't do it. Well, the fact that ransomware is out there is because it can be a lucrative business because of this data lollapalooza out there that, that's basically, as you suggested, Greg, the, the wild west of the Internet. Hmm. And, and uh, you know, look, we have to decide, and it's our choice. What I, what I say over and over in the book is it's our choice. It's still our choice. We're not too far gone to be able to, to correct this. Hmm. But we, we've got to make that choice now. And one interesting reason for making the choice as soon as possible is, is, the, is the constant evolution of new technology. So you read a lot about quantum computing and that it may be real tomorrow, it may be real in 50 years. Who knows when it's going to be here? But when it's here, and I'll give you one example of one of the things that scares me a little bit here, is that when it's real, it's going to be able to break the, the best security that we use today, which is 
you know, the security that, that we use for digital signatures and encrypts everything that we, that we do online, it will be able to break that security in 10 seconds, right? So today, our strongest computers can take upwards of 300 trillion years to break that security. Quantum computer, a relatively meaningful strength, but one that we don't have yet, will take 10 seconds. And so that means that everything we're doing today is eventually insecure. That is why it's been reported the Chinese are stealing encrypted information wherever they can find it under the hopes of being able to decrypt it when they have quantum computers. So this is a moving, moving game. It's constantly moving forward. And, and we can't be looking at this as a static problem or else we're going to be finding ourselves with our feet in the mud and our data someplace else. Right. Let me ask you about a couple of kind of baby, simple, real-life examples uh, just from my own life and to help understand how these kind of practices fold into what we're talking about on a much grander, significant scale. So, for instance... When someone goes on YouTube and watches something, and I watch something and I want to write a comment, uh, at least the way my computer is set up, I need to sign in to Google. In other words, I cannot comment anonymously on a YouTube video. I need to, I need to comment with my, in a sense, Google identification. Is that kind of a small-scale example of what you are talking about in terms of a less anonymous uh, Internet? Or, or is that something completely different from what we are talking about? Now, that, that's the first very, very small step in, in that direction where you have to actually identify yourself. But here's the problem, Greg, with, with what you just laid out, and that is there's no assurance today that the Greg that's signing into his Google account to leave a comment on YouTube is Greg and not a bot. And hmm. that's what we've run into, for example, in the last election with thousands of Russian or whoever bots they were just running around, leaving comments, creating an information base that wasn't real, right? And so that's the other difficult part of what we're dealing with. Uh, there's been a lot written in the last few weeks about deep fakes. I was reading an article yesterday about now the, the, the technology with deep fakes where, where your face can be superimposed on anybody else's in any other video, in any other picture, and make it look like you're doing horrendous things you would never think of doing and, and making them look absolutely real has now gotten into the revenge porn business where people are putting faces of people on other, in other pictures and circulating them online. Uh, and, and they have nothing to do with, with the reality of that person or who they are. And it's causing enormous damage and enormous pain. And it's all because, uh, you know, we haven't paid attention to the insecurities uh, uh, that we all know are there. And we've talked a little bit about, all the, you know, now a good portion of them, but deep fakes. Deep fakes are the next level of uh, disinformation online after bots, you know, and it, it sort of says to me, I don't know what I can believe, even if I see and hear it anymore. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty difficult and complex world to live in when 
you read something, you see something, and you say, that may be completely artificial and completely made up. Let me ask you about one other real-life example, and that is something that I do here at the radio station and also at the college where I teach in both of those places. Uh, in many cases, to access something like my email, I have to go through this thing called One Login. And uh, I can remember particularly at, in, in, in the One uh, location, uh, a lot of consternation over that because of what felt like a tremendous uh, inconvenience. I mean, actually, not in terms of total number of seconds. It's seconds, not even minutes that we're talking about. And yet, when someone is used to just click and there it is, uh, even that fairly modest encumbrance uh, on the rapidity we take for granted uh, can, can be really frustrating and hard to accept. But uh, I, I think as these kind of attacks begin to mount, the point of something like that becomes uh, much clearer. Uh, is that the kind of thing, again, is that a, a, a fairly simple example of what you think needs to be, in a sense, much more widespread and much stronger in terms of a line of defense? Yeah, precisely. I mean, again, that's the first step. Most uh, computer experts would tell you that I think what you're referring to, Greg, is sort of multi-factor authentication. You know, yes. you have to go in and provide several layers of, uh, of, of assertions of who you are and have a text sent to your cell phone and maybe something else happened. And You know, I, I've talked to experts who say, and I agree with this, that that's the first level. Multi-factor authentication is the first level of security, but it is not enough. Uh, some will tell you that it, it, it doesn't cover the entire universe of potential problems that can occur, and we need better software, better hardware at the end of the day uh, to deal with these kinds of problems. And let me, let me make a point on that, because there's two fundamental problems with the Internet that are extremely difficult to deal with, uh, particularly for laymen. Number one is we as human beings make mistakes. You know, we, we give out information to people unknowingly, we click on things we shouldn't be clicking on, and we allow people into systems uh, just by happenstance without even knowing it because we've clicked on some sort of malicious malware that we got in an email that said, have you seen this picture of your wife or something? You know, <laughs> there's lots of things people know how to say to get you to click on it. Uh, and, and so that's human error is number one. Number two is that the drive to make money and, and create profits online has put us in the position where a lot of software and the coding in that software hasn't been tested completely enough. Because if, if the software engineer comes to the CEO and says, I need six more months to test this software and the coding to make sure the coding is proper, you know, the CEO is maybe likely to say, as CEOs are want to, listen, we're going to make a lot of money with this software. We've got to get it out there before our competitor does. Let's get it out there. We'll launch first and patch second. And that has become sort of the way that we do business in this new crazy wild, wild west of the Internet. And unfortunately, once you take that first step to saying we launch first and we patch second, you are then playing behind the bad guys because they're always going to be a step ahead of your patching and your software because they'll find the, the, the defects as soon as they come out and they'll take advantage of them. And so, you know, I hesitate. I'm not a big government guy. 
having been in the government. But, you know, I hesitate to say maybe we need an FDA for coding and software, but there's got to be some sort of collegial effort by government and, and uh, industry to make sure that the hardware is, is more impenetrable, that the software has perfect coding and is more impenetrable. And until we get to that point, that's the other part of this, that we're, we're not going to have a secure online infrastructure that our adversaries and uh, criminal cartels and terrorists are not going to be able to take advantage of. Are you fairly confident that that substantive and potentially helpful conversations about this are happening right now uh, in kind of the circles of power where those discussions need to be occurring? Yes, uh, those discussions, and there's a reason why, you know, as I said, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to sort of centralize the questions and the discussion on what we need because they are occurring. So if you look at the discussion of the statements that have come out of uh, generals in the military, for example, present and past, uh, they will tell you that we are inadequately disposed uh, in the worlds of artificial intelligence. We are inadequately disposed with respect to online security. We are, in, you know, falling behind China in, in, in various different areas that affect military defense. So those statements and those warnings are all out there. In March of 2020, uh, there was a terrific report put out by the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which basically, if you cut through the 100 or so pages of terrific analysis they put out, was an enormous plea for help. Uh, it, was a, it was a joint effort by uh, political leaders, congressmen, senators, and private industry to put a report together that uh, I think was basically a, a plea for help saying we are on a path to destruction unless we fix this problem. Similarly, there was a report put out by the National um, Institute, I forgot exactly the name, for Artificial Intelligence, uh, which was a government effort, basically saying we're falling behind China when it comes to artificial intelligence. And so the warnings are all out there. In fact, the Clinton administration in 1996 laid out the issues and the warnings. And, and, the, and the sad part of this is the Clinton administration laid out the warnings and the issues, and we've done relatively little to deal with it in the 25 years since. We've We've made a lot of progress in creating interfaces that create a lot of efficiencies, a lot of enhancement of, of the human uh, state, and make people a lot of money. But we haven't focused as much on the invulnerability and the security of the systems. And so, yes, the discussions are all out there. I list 100 reports that have been done in the last 25 years, and the book may be worth the price of admission just for those reports that I put in the <laughs> appendix. I list those reports, I quote for them, and, and, and you get a sense. And what I wanted to do was give the reader the sense of the same warning being made over and over and over again in the last 25 years and no action taken. Or, for example, a presidential directive being put out by Clinton, uh, by Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, all the same. I mean, they're just rehashing all the same warnings and all the same points. And what do they do? They delegate the responsibility to fix these problems to 24 federal agencies. Now, 
I know as a former general counsel of a federal agency, delegating that responsibility to 24 agencies means nobody's responsible for anything and no, nothing will get done. And, and that's sort of where we've been for the last 25 years. So, yes, the warnings are out there. Prestigious people have been saying we have to do something to fix this, and we just haven't fixed it well enough because mm. the problem is bigger than a bread box. It's right. a global problem and not just a problem we can fix by passing a piece of legislation. Well, your book certainly sets out a a clear path towards what you believe is a much more secure world, and uh, our listeners can read it for themselves. The book is The Unhackable Internet, How Rebuilding Cyberspace Can Create Real Security and Prevent Financial Collapse, published by Prometheus, the author Thomas Vartanian. Thomas Vartanian, thank you for this fascinating book, and thank you for being my morning show guest today. Greg, it was a real pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate uh, the really insightful questions.